following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. We were made to delight in God. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Today, we are focusing on delighting in God, delighting in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, delighting in the Trinity, and what does it mean to delight in God? So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 37 and stand with me as I read Psalm 37, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 37, verses 1 through 4. This is the perfect word of God. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. We thank you that you are alive, you are powerful, you use your word to change us. I pray, Lord, that you would do that now, that you would use your word to change us, to comfort us, to challenge us, whatever you will. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Psalm 37 is a wisdom poem, it's a wisdom song written by David around 1000 BC. And in that psalm, in verse four, there's this Hebrew word for delight. And it's a command telling us to find our enjoyment in God. And we've been seeking to do just that as a church, to to love and understand and fellowship with the Trinity to behold our God, to see and savior God's goodness and greatness. And we began in Isaiah 6, uh, seeing God's majesty and his holiness that causes us to worship him and humbly serve him. We jumped over to 1 Thessalonians chapter one into a Trinitarian passage and consecutively focused on God the Father, then God the Son, then God the Holy Spirit. Saw that God the Father is this present, choosing, loving Father who causes his children to thrive in Christ. We saw that God the Son is a powerful and perfect and personal savior who gives his people faith and hope and love and joy. And last week we saw that the Holy Spirit changes your life by the gospel and empowers Christ honoring living through the word. This is what we have seen and it's so amazing what God does, it's so amazing who God is. And he is so good. He gives us victory in Jesus. If you're a believer today, you have victory in Jesus. You can sing that song. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. And God is so good to us to to assure us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, uh, to tell us that we are uncondemned, and to say that that he delights in us, and therefore we can delight in him. And, And it's awesome, isn't it? But it isn't that simple. It isn't as simple as saying, well, I'm just gonna delight in God and everything's gonna be great. We go through tough times in life. We go through periods of time where we don't feel like we're delighting and so maybe we're misunderstanding what it means to delight in God. It's tough to keep your delight in God on the straight and narrow, uh, focused on him. Sometimes we're like a, a car that's just careening along a mountain highway, uh, coming to some dangerously, you know, scary, idolatrous extremes in our life. Uh, We know we're living a back and forth Romans 7 battle. All of us would admit that uh, we don't always delight in God, and I think we could all admit that we're not even sure what that actually means. What does it mean to delight in God? So we're going to explore that together today, and if you're anything like me, you really need this sermon. I mean, I really needed to, to study Psalm 37 this week. I really needed to study the, the related passages this week. Now let me do this. Let me give a bit of a, a Trinity review. 
If you've been here through the whole series, this will be a good review for you. If you're new to Grace, this will be a good uh, intro for you. But a Trinity review, and it starts like this. There is one God. There is one God, uh, one being that is God. Now, that's in contrast to persons. He's one being that is God. But there are three distinct divine persons in the one being that is God. Now, it's not three beings. It's one being in three divine persons. Each of the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. They're co-equal. Each fully shares the one being that is God. Louis Burkhoff put it this way, the undivided essence of God belonging equally to all three persons. The Father is not the Son. The, the Son is not the Spirit, and so on. So it's not the Father one-third, the Son one-third, the Spirit one-third. Each is fully God, and they are co-eternal. Uh, they existed uniquely in relationship outside of time. John Frame put it this way, God is one being, God is three persons. The three persons are fully God. Each fully God. And each of the persons is distinct from the others. The three persons are eternally related as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why is this so important? Because every error with relation to the Trinity, with relation to the nature of God, denies that God is one being in three co-equal, co-eternal divine persons. If you deny that there is one God, you lean to polytheism, you believe in many gods. If you deny that all three persons of God are equal, you would lean towards subordinationism, which you would say one is greater than the other. If you deny the existence of three persons, you would lean towards modalism, saying that God exists in three modes and there's only one person. Now, I like the way that Michael Reeves put it. He said, you gotta start from scratch with what does the Bible say about God and go from there. But what he said is, well, that's not what we do. We envision God according to our assumptions. Well, this is what he must be like. And then what happens is we open our Bibles up and our mind rebels against a God that is different than we expect. The Athanasian Creed in AD 500, from which we get the visual of the Trinity shield, uh, was distinguishing Christianity from Arianism, the heresy of Arianism. And Athanasius, the fourth century bishop of Alexandria, was an expert uh, defender of the doctrines of the Trinity and of uh, the deity of Christ. And so he defined the, the doctrine of the Trinity very concisely, and this is one of the things he said, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. You gotta grasp these truths about God if you really want to delight in the one true God. Now, what we saw then when we started looking at God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are there some things that need to be corrected sometimes in our thinking about who God is? What does the Bible say about him? The most foundational thing about God that we learned is that God is first and foremost loving Father. And many people primarily think of God as creator and ruler. That is not his starting place. He is first Father. He was loving the Son before the creation of the world. Then you get to Jesus and you realize, well, he's not created by the Father. Arianism says that. It was denounced by the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople. It still exists in the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups. But the Son was active in creation, not a created being. Then you get to the Holy Spirit and there are all sorts of wacky ideas that people hold on to that aren't biblical about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. A he, not an it. The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus, guides disciples, speaks, discloses future events, glorifies Christ, knows things, wills things, and helps you live the Christian life. You need to understand these things about God. God is three in one, not a single person God. Now what that leads us to is awestruck delight in the triune God. And this is what brings us to Psalm 37 verse four that says delight in God, and what you notice is that delight in God is anchored in something. I wanna point out some things to you that it's anchored in, and the first truth is this, that God delights in his children. And where do we find that? Well, right there in Psalm 37, look at verse 39, and it says this, 
The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He saves them. They take refuge in him. So when the psalmist is saying in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, it's already because he has delighted in you, that he delights to save. So this is about people who believe in the one true God and are delighting in him because he delights first in them. Now, I want to take you to another place that explains this. Go to Zephaniah. And if you're wondering to yourself, where is Zephaniah? Go to the right if you have a paper Bible. Just go to the right from Psalms. And if you have an electronic Bible, it's the fourth book from the end of the Old Testament, okay? Zephaniah, and I want to point out to you, first, Zephaniah 3.17, and secondly, Zephaniah 3.14. Well, let me give you an idea of what's going on in Zephaniah. He brings a word of judgment from God to Judah in 7th century BC during the reign of Josiah, the last godly king of Judah. And he, he, what he's going to say is going to lead to the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon in 586. The northern kingdom had already fallen to the Assyrians in 722, and Judah is going on the same downward path. And so Zephaniah comes and he begins with one of the most dramatic uh, declarations of coming judgment in Scripture. Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3 says, I, God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, what he's saying is, my wrath against those who rebel is going to be unleashed sometime here in the future. But then you get to the final section of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, and what you'll notice is judgment is not God's final word for his people. Okay, it's not his final word for his people. He's telling us he's gonna redeem. So he's telling them in the, in, in right there when it happened, I'm gonna redeem a remnant. And if you look at Zephaniah 3, 9, God says this, I'm going to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them will call upon the name of the Lord and serve him. And he's saying, I'm gonna convert the nations. Gentiles are gonna call on God's name. Verse 10 says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers will bring my offering. That God's sovereign grace is going to reach all the way to the southernmost branches of the Nile, deep into Africa, and prayers for salvation are going to be addressed to God alone. This is what he's pointing out, that God's going to convert the nations. And in verse 11 it says, and on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. You got God's mercy here, God's forgiveness, God's grace that he is going to show upon those he has chosen to save. Now what you gotta acknowledge is God is 100% right to be angry with people outside of Christ due to their sin. Romans 1 tells us very clearly, we have sinfully suppressed the truth, we've ignored the truth that God has shown, we refuse to honor God, uh, we exchange God's glory for idolatry. And what you've also gotta acknowledge is that God is 100% right to be happy with people in Christ all because of his sovereign grace and his good pleasure in choosing and in saving them. So what you see in Zephaniah 3.17 is God's people comforted by his presence. Look at 3.17. This is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, by the way. 17 says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. God's covenant with David would be fulfilled. The son of David would be sitting on Yahweh's throne. This is Isaiah 9, 6, mighty God stuff. This is Matthew 1, 23, Emmanuel stuff. And he says, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save, the divine warrior, basically. And this is what you need to remember if you're a believer today. God is the hero who saves. You're going through a tough time in your life and you're a believer, Remember this, this will take you through everything. This will carry you through everything. God is the mighty hero who saves. And what does this mighty hero who saves do? Look on in verse 17. It says he will rejoice over you with gladness and will, be qu and will quiet you by his love. Wasn't well, that interesting? God is going to rejoice over you with gladness and quiet you by his love. Better translation is he will be quiet because of his love. And the idea is that all that God will save, God is not gonna bring accusations against you 
because the blood of Christ pleads your new innocence. And then it says he will exult over you with loud singing. God is expressing his love for us by singing to us that he delights in his people. So who's the one who's most joyful? God himself. He's the leader of the joy. So the question, if you're a believer today, is does God delight in me? So you ask that question, does God delight in me? And the answer is yes, if you're a believer. You might ask, is he happy with me in Christ? Yes. Now, God is grieved when you sin. God is grieved when you remain unrepentant. God is grieved when you're hard-hearted. But he loves you, and as a believer, his kindness will lead you to repentance. And God is not only pleased with you when you perform well. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ tells us that. He chose you before the foundation of the world. Now that sounds scandalous, right? The gospel of the grace of God in Christ that leads you to repent and worship God is scandalous. And we are all like prodigals and Peters, really. We're simultaneously saved and sinful at the same time. If you're a believer, you know it's true. And what happens? You start thinking things that aren't accurate. You think, well, I need to earn God's love. Or I've done enough to merit God's grace. Or I imagine that God is always angry and frustrated at me. Now look, God does not ignore sin. He takes it very seriously. He sent Jesus to the cross because of your sin. But you don't have to be good enough. God delights in you, believer, because he wants to delight in you. He has chosen to delight in you. In you. He chose you from eternity past to be with him forever. And what happens is then you begin to delight in God because he delights in you and you're no longer trying to earn it with God. You're celebrating who he is and then you want to please him. And so Zephaniah 3.14 points out what, what we are being called to do in Psalm 37.4 that God's children delight in him. Look at Zephaniah 3.14. Those who are being saved sing his praises. Rejoice, exult with all your heart. Sing, shout, be glad. Rejoice with the Lord with all your heart. Zephaniah is like piling up verse, verbs expressing joy like stepping stones to the throne of God. And he takes, he's saying this is gonna take you from present gloom to future glory. And God's gonna do it in your heart. Just rejoice in him. He intends joy for you. If you're a believer, there's a king in your midst and he isn't angry with you. He delights in you. He is righteously angry over sin, but he has wiped it away in Christ. Now you know you're fighting the Romans 7 battle. You're saved and you still sin, but the gospel gives you great joy. This is good news of great joy stuff. And so God calls his people to rejoice, taking away their judgments, remove their enemies. Every judgment against their sin is gone. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because God is merciful. This is why you can uh, rejoice with the psalmist in Psalm 73 when the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Now we are, we are desiring all sorts of things in our lives. Many of those things aren't good for us, but wouldn't it be great to be at the point where we just said, God, besides you, I desire nothing on earth and have moments that increase where we uh, have that heart desire I read this at the beginning of the service, Psalm 1611. Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there's pleasures forever. But what does it mean to delight in God? What does that mean? You know, Christians are saved to delight in God. Look at the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We would delight in God because he saved you. But what does it mean to delight in him? That brings us to Psalm 37 verse 4. Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. What does that mean? In, in Hebrew the word for delight, it comes from a root that means soft or pliable. Figuratively it means to uh, have luxuriousness or delicateness uh, and to have delight in that literally to be pampered, uh, to be happy about it, to take exquisite delight 
in something, to either make merry over something, like, like the father of the prodigal said, we had to make merry, we had to delight because the son has returned. But you notice in Psalm 37, delight in the Lord is your cure for worry. All of you that are worrying so much about so many things in life, there's your cure for worry. And here is David. He's an old man when he's writing this. You know how we know? Look at verse 25. I've been young, and now I'm old. He's an old man, and he's speaking these wise words of wisdom, like he's been through it all. He's seen it all. And he has dwelt in the presence of Almighty God. And he's saying, delight is better than worry. Fret is the word that the psalm starts with, fret. Three times in the first eight verses, don't fret. And then he gives the cure for worry. Verse two, understand that evildoers have an eternal final fate. Verse three, trust in the Lord, do good, cultivate faithfulness. Verse five, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him. Verse seven, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. There is one command. One command, verse four, delight yourself in the Lord. Change your focus from worrying about what everybody else is doing to delighting in a good God. A.W. Tozier said, we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us on to the pursuit. And when the Holy Spirit shows us God as he is, we admire him to the point of wonder and delight. Stephen Charnock said this delight springs from the spirit of God. Not a spark of fire on your own hearth is able to kindle this spiritual delight. It is the Holy Spirit who breathes such heavenly heat into your affections. Now, isn't it true that when we think about delighting in God, we think about it circumstantially? Am I feeling good right now? Are things going well for me right now? And delight in God, the kind of delight that Psalm 37 is talking about is where you delight not just when it's easy, but when it's toughest, because it's not circumstantial. Again, this Hebrew verb for delight is a command telling you to find your enjoyment in God Almighty. Now, I've been thinking to myself, what's the New Testament counterpart of this delight in Psalm 37. First thing that came to my mind, it's gotta be joy. It's gotta be joy. I think about Acts 13, 52. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. I think of Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit. So, so the Spirit is the source and the cause of the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and then joy. It's grounded in a relationship with, with God through Christ. So I was thinking to myself, well the New Testament parallels Psalm 37.4 could be Philippians 4.4. Go over there to Philippians 4.4 because we're told to do something in Philippians 4.4 that sounds a lot like what we're being told to do in Psalm 37.4. Now Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Look over at verse one of chapter three. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So, you know, in, in Philippians there, we're, we're being told to rejoice and do it continually as a habitual action. Always, it says rejoice always. That means without interruption, continually, increasingly, unceasingly, repeatedly. That word was used of paying taxes where you keep on paying your taxes. It was used of continually serving. You're always serving. It, it it's used of a persistent cough where you're always coughing. Josephus, in, in his uh, recording of the Jewish wars, said it, it's used of uh, repeated military attacks. Even the continuing failing of a military effort. It's also used of the regular and, and consistent uh, production of fruit on a tree. And the idea is that as you rejoice in God, God gives you the ability to rejoice. God provides the ability for every command he gives you. So in Philippians 2, where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. Work out your salvation that brings delight in the Lord, for God's at work in you, continually energizing you to will and do his desire, his, his delight. And here's what happens. God gives power to do what pleases him, uh, to do his good pleasure, to do his delight. 
And so I thought to myself, it's got to be that. Turns out that the New Testament counterpart to Psalm 37, verse 4, delight is not that. It's related to it. I want you to go over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we're going to begin at verse 1. I just want you to see this. James 5, verse 1. It says this. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. So they're in trouble. Not sounding like delight to me yet. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Oh, they're in really bad trouble and I don't sense any delight. And then this, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I'm not catching the delight, are you? Look at verse five. Here's your delight, spoken negatively. You have lived on the earth in luxury. There's the counterpart word to the delight in the Old Testament. How do I know that? Now, there's a very old translation of the Bible in Greek called the Septuagint. This is the word with the root that is translated in Psalm 37.4 into the Greek. And it's the only time you see it in the New Testament. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence and have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So it's used negatively for luxury and self-indulgence. So what is delight? Delight is whatever truly thrills your soul. Delight is whatever truly interests you. Delight is whatever you luxuriously and generously and lavishly engage in. Delight is what pampers you. Delight is luxurious, generous attention. That could be almost anything in your life that you are giving a lot of attention to. What does it mean to delight in God? To delight in God means that you give luxurious, generous attention to him. You give luxurious, generous attention to God. Literally, you luxuriate and rest in God. Now, the most luxurious thing I can think of is going home and, and there being like a basin of warm water for my feet to be put in, and, and someone says, I'm gonna rub your back and rub your feet. Now that would be awesome, that would be luxurious, okay? I'm sure you would all would love that, right? Now here's the thing. The delight that the psalmist is talking about is not silly and frivolous. See, we think of delight as just something that catches our fancy, something that catches our attention, and we like it for a little while, then it dissipates. This delight is different. This delight is sober and it is serious. This delight is supernatural because you don't delight in God unless he first delights in you in Christ and until you determine that you are going to delight in God. That's why there's a lot of Christians that don't delight in God. They think they have fire insurance and they think, well, God delights in me and he likes me whatever I do. When you delight in a person, by the way, you, you want to be with them and you want to talk with them, right? You don't avoid them. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 1 verse 2? Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night, uh, generously and luxuriously giving attention to God's word. Why would someone do that? Because God's word reveals who God is. And then you start caring supremely about some things. In fact, you, you care more than anybody or at least it seems like it. You know what it's like to care for things in your life. You know what it's like to care extravagantly, to pay attention generously. You do it with children and chores and jobs. You do it with your phone. First Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. Continual attitude, persistent attitude. How, how does something become a reflex action in your life where you just go to it? 
You do it over and over again. It becomes a habit in your life. It could be something good, it could be something that ruins you. When I was coaching my kids in basketball for many years, I would always tell my players, I'd say, hey look, we're gonna practice the fundamentals over and over and over again. I'm not gonna let you shoot for a while at practice. You're gonna learn passing and dribbling and then shooting. And I would tell them this, practice makes permanent. What you practice over and over again becomes a groove in your life. And the idea here is that you would make permanent a groove in your life to delight in God in a luxurious and generous way of putting your attention upon him. Now we know we don't live like that, do we? We have a lot of growth that is needed by the grace of God. In Hebrews 5, it talks about those who by practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil, which means there's some that by practicing other things uh, don't discern good and evil. In fact, the writer of Hebrews even says some have become dull of hearing. Now, just this week I was reading uh, Harry Ironside uh, regarding Hosea, another prophet that brought judgment from God to the people, and he was called to declare God's mind regarding Israel's gross idolatry. Like they were grossly idolatrous. This was from 750 to 722 BC. Because God had a problem with the people. They had broken every one of the Ten Commandments. They had done everything wrong. And God says, I'm gonna set my face against you in righteous judgment. And in fact, I'm gonna intervene because there's no one among you that is even worthy to rebuke anyone because you're all infected. Like the, the 11 had come through the whole batch and none of them were submitting to God. And the lesson that, that Ironside brings out is evil never dies of old age. And that sin unjudged is like cancer that grows till the whole body is, is ruined. This is what happened with God's people over and over again. They, they refuse the word of God, they walk in darkness, and they're destroyed. They refuse to obey God. But this has happened throughout the ages, by the way. 16th century, God raises up Martin Luther to sound a clear call to get back to the Bible, that the just shall live by faith. It's in the Bible. The majority of the professing church at that time had no ear for that message. They did not want that message. So they sank more deeply into superstition. People are saying they believe in Jesus. The Wesleys and their co-workers ordained of God to arouse the lifeless profession of their day with a call to repentance. Many of the, of the professing believers refused to listen. They became even more formal, more ritual uh, in, their, in their religion, and there's this huge harvest of lost souls that resulted. Today, the scriptures are being rejected as God's full and final revelation by people professing to be Christians. Now, they put the word of God on par or below human writings. I love what the writer of Hebrews said as he you know, was saying, look, some of you become dull of hearing. He said, but I am convinced of better things concerning you. That you would actually give luxurious, generous attention to God. That you would actually want to please him. God's delight in you causes you to delight in him. You want to do his will. You open up the word. You say, I want to do what it says. I want to bring delight to God. And it's this snowball effect that happens when you are aligned that way with God. So whatever you delight in, that's what you really care about. Delight generates you caring supremely about what God cares about. So what does delighting in God cause you to care about? What does delighting in God care you to, to, to think deeply about and engage uh, luxuriously and generously? Well, first on the list is the glory of God. The absolute first thing on the list is the glory of God, and it just causes worship and wonder in our hearts towards God and love towards God. Uh, were you healthy? Uh, you know, delight in God because you believe what's true about God, and your mind keeps getting constantly renewed by the word of God. I was sharing my testimony with someone yesterday, and I'm like, I remember as a new believer that I was reading the word so much, and I saw the word on a daily basis changing my life, and I wanted different things. So your, your mind being reformed according to the image of God as you rejoice in who he is, and you go, wow, I'm loved by God in Christ. Well, Jesus chose me and regenerated me and convicted me of my sins and brought me to repentance and redeemed me and sanctifies me and he's keeping me and 
He's sovereign. He's securing me. He's providing for me. And he loves me. You think about it. If God in mercy saves your soul, he is going to work into your heart a delight and a wonder about who he is and what he has done. Augustine preached over 1,500 years ago a sermon that said this. Give me a man in love, he knows what I mean. Give me one who yearns, one who is hungry. Give me one who is thirsty and sighs for the springs of the eternal country. Give me that sort, he knows what I mean. A cold-hearted man just doesn't know what I'm talking about. If this is foreign stuff to you, then God needs to raise your affections in proportion to the importance of who he is. This is why Paul, in Romans 11, just pauses and says, oh, the depths of the riches and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever. His heart was just welling up because he cared about God's glory. Why? Because God cares about his glory. God cares deeply about his glory. Hear me on this one. God cares deeply about his glory and he cares deeply about baptism. Mm-hmm. Not a hard left turn. Not a hard left turn. God cares deeply about his glory and about baptism. Why? Because you glorify God as a believer by being baptized as a believer. That's your first step of discipleship. That's your first obedience to Jesus. Jesus said, do this. Give a public testimony of your faith in me. When you do that, you share the love of your heavenly father, you share the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, you share the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with others. You know what J.I. Packer said? If you wanna know how much someone loves God and understands the gospel, how much do they make of being a child of God? It shapes your whole outlook. I love Luke 15, 10. There is joy in heaven before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, here's our problem with this verse. You know what we do? We focus on the angels in this verse. We're supposed to be focusing on God and his glory in this verse. There is joy in heaven before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who is before the angels of God? God himself. He rejoices to give himself. God didn't just beam the information down to you. The father sent the son because the father loved the son and he wanted to share that loving fellowship with you. Uh, Jesus said to his father in John 17, 22, I have given them the glory you gave me. That should stop you in your tracks and say, what? Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord and I will not give my glory to another. How can God give us his glory in Christ? Because the Father gives the glory to none other but his Son. And if you're a Christian today, you are in Christ. You have union with Christ. You're united by faith. God cares foremost about his glory and so must every believer. You have to. You want to delight in him. If, if you want to luxuriously and generously pay attention to God. What else does God care a lot about? God cares a lot about personal purity. Now, we don't use this term as often as we should, or we're afraid of the term. We like to say, oh, he cares about growth in Christlikeness. Well, growth in Christlikeness will show itself in personal purity. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that if you don't, that you are gonna defraud people, and that you are rejecting God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Isn't it interesting that God ties our growth in Christ and our holiness to our moral choices. We've all made choices that we, that we are ashamed of. It should drive us to the throne of grace to receive mercy, find grace to help in time of need. Purity, we need to, a lot of us need to break free from some addictions. Gossip and slander and cheating and lying and, and pornography. I was at a lunch this week with eight men and one of the men said, do you know that Six out of every 10 men struggle with pornography, and I'm doing the math as I'm at the table going, hmm. 
I mean, think about Isaiah 6. He professes God's holiness and he confesses his uncleanness. Think about Leviticus. In Leviticus, chapters 8 through 10, it's about God's holiness. Don't go, oh, I don't like reading Leviticus. No, you need to grasp the holiness of God. You can't approach him without a sacrifice. You're defiled by sin. You must be clean to enter the presence of God. What happens? God in love provides forgiveness so his people can fellowship with him. In Leviticus, it was, in Leviticus 9, it was Aaron and his sons obeying God's commands and entering into the presence of God as he prescribed. Uh, in, in Leviticus 9.23, you've got the glory of God manifest to his people. Fire from heaven comes down and consumes the offerings on the altar. You've got the flaming holiness of God and his gracious presence with his believing people. But then you get to chapter 10 in Leviticus, the contrast couldn't be starker. Nadab and Abihu violate God's word, offer strange fire, fire from God comes down and obliterates them. God's wrath is displayed, they approached him wrong. The priest's job was to distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. Nadab and Abihu just went past God's word and said we don't care about that. How does that affect the believer? You need to know that Jesus is the sacrifice for your sin and that you're able to come into the presence of a holy God clothed in Christ's righteousness. And that leads you to want to obey and say no to sin. And what happens is your will that's been changed in Christ should cause you to live differently, that you would have a transformed life, that the fruit of the Spirit would be seen and that you would say, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to insult the Holy Spirit. I don't want to quench or extinguish the Holy Spirit. I want to resolve to do nothing outside the bounds of Scripture and my conscience. I want to align with God. I want to resist the pull to rebel against God's righteousness. I want to enjoy God more than all else. You know the battle. We all do. But what happens when you start enjoying God above all else, when you start to pay attention to God luxuriously and generously, all these mirages that you're going after begin to dissipate into thin air. In 1 John 3, it tells us, see what kind of love the Father has for us that we would be called children of God? And we know that when he appears, we will be like him and we will see him as he is. And then it says this, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. You have sanctification going on. You're making choices as the Holy Spirit changes your desires. One person put it this way, your wanter is changed. I wanna give you encouragement if your wanter is, is not as changed as you want it to be and you find yourself falling back into certain sins. Just know this, when you want what God wants and you struggle through doing the right thing, you're in the right place because God helps the needy and the brokenhearted. James Boyce said that the reason many apparent Christians do not delight in God is because they don't know him very well. And the reason they don't know him very well is they don't spend any time with him. Spurgeon said it this way, don't think first of your desires in your heart. Think first of delighting yourself in your God. If you delight in him, he's gonna give you the desires of your heart. He's gonna give you the right desires to have. For those of you today that you go, I feel really stuck in sin, let me remind you of some things. Jesus died to set you free. Jesus died to give you joy. Jesus at the cross, the sovereign savior, the perfect sinless sacrifice, substituted himself in your place and suffered God's just wrath and paid your penalty and secured eternal life for all that God would save and sanctified. If you're a Christian today, God made you spiritually alive in Christ. God granted you faith and repentance. God reconciled you to himself. God gave you union with Christ and fellowship with God. God showed you mercy. He shielded you from his wrath. He declared you not guilty. He changed you from an enemy to a friend. Your identity has changed. He purchased your redemption. He, he freed you from sin's power and penalty. He adopted you into his family. He gave you brothers and sisters in Christ. He transferred you from the domain of darkness into his kingdom. He gave you citizenship in heaven. 
you reclaim the goal of creation. And so if you're a Christian, you are free because it says, Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. You're free to glorify God. You're free to love. You're free to preach the gospel. You're free to repent. You're, you're free to pray with boldness. You're free to serve God's purposes. You're free to delight in God and give luxurious, generous attention to God. You're not, you're not stuck. You're free. God cares about his glory and, and your purity. I'm going to give you one more. God cares about church unity. We must fight for unity. We must love. If you are one who says, I have had an experience of the Holy Spirit. I am regenerate. I've been converted to Christ. And you are sour and harsh and controlling and mean and you're not consistent with spirit-led living. And just let me tell you, God isn't broken. The whole Christian life is about delighting in Christ where you go, wow, Look what God did. I'm going to seek a healthy relationship in Christ's family. I'm going to seek to bring others into the family. I'm going to seek to take care of my family. I'm going to live the family reality of you know, ups and downs and twos and fro's, and we have a family mission, and we have family bonding, and sure, we have family scuffles at times, but I'm going to refuse to jump to conclusions about people. I'm going to refuse to judge prematurely. I'm going to refuse to hold grudges. I'm going to refuse to refuse to reconcile, and I'm going to refuse to insist on my rightness. You know what Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 5.1? For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. He goes, launches right into walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit of God. God is very concerned about his glory, your personal purity, and church unity. And delighting in God makes you care more about these things. Except we know that this is not our daily experience. And sometimes you feel frustrated, right? And sometimes you feel broken, right? And it's at this point we, we encounter some, some problems. We feel like the gears are, are grinding. And what we find is that Romans 7 speaks of, of delighting in God, but also our desires waging war. And we, we just want the easy button, don't we? All of us do. We want the quick fix. And, and what we find is it's not a one-time fix. It's a continual realignment as each moment requires. It's God adjusting you on the fly. And when the terrain of life gets bumpy and rocky and slippery, you want the easy button, but it's not there. And the reason it's not there, the reason it doesn't happen just automatically where you say, well, now I'm gonna rejoice in God for every moment over the rest of my life. I promise it's because we can get puffed up and arrogant and we can get leaky and needy all the time. What happens is God is continually orchestrating events in your life to cause you to depend on him. That's why you need the word of God and, and prayer and, and you need God daily where you fill up with the word of God, you delight in God because you're going out into a contrary world you're also going out with a contrary heart and a mind that is often contrary. You need Jesus every moment to reignite your delight, to give you a desire to have luxurious, generous attention towards God. And, and then you get these moments in life of sheer delight. You're surprised by the joy that you have in Christ. Look, there's glimpses in this life that just blow us away and give us kind of a foretaste of that joy. I remember my son Michael and his wife Taylor on their engagement day. And I remember that Michael's sisters, I have four girls and one boy, and Michael's sisters had hidden behind rocks down at the beach where the, he was gonna propose, and they were taking pictures. I remember going, but can't I be there too? And they're like, you meet us at the party later. Uh, this is sister, brother time, you know, and all that. And so what happens is we're all waiting at the beach waiting for them to arrive. I will never forget the delight on their faces, the delight that was just like oozing out of them, the, the, the joy of their engagement. And the same thing happened on their wedding day. 
And I had the privilege, and this is a one-time only privilege, this will never happen again in my life, So I got one boy. I was the pastor, the best man, and the father. I was like, and it was Michael's choice, right? I'm like, I'll do what you want. But I'm telling you, on their wedding day, just see the joy, the delight. It was like oozing out of them. It was the same thing when our grandson Ezra was born. It was just sheer delight. But Jonathan Edwards, as I started this sermon, I said that he said that fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. John Owen, in his beautiful book, The Glory of Christ, said this, our eyes were made to see our redeemer. And so that while on earth, while you're living right now, Faith beholding the glory of Christ gives you a foretaste of future glory. And he says that there is no glory, no peace, no joy, no satisfaction to be found in this world compared to what we get from that weak and imperfect view which we have of the glory of Christ by faith. And then he says, and while we are still in this world, faith gives us such a foretaste of future blessedness in the enjoyment of Christ. God's delight in you causes you to delight in him and then to give luxurious, generous attention to him. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that you care so deeply about your glory and about our life and about your church. Thank you, Lord, that we could even have a desire to give luxurious, generous attention to you that we could even have a desire to care deeply about what you care about. And Lord, we pray in faith, looking to the day when your bride is received into your embrace and that all your delight will be realized and we will enjoy you forever. We look to that day and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.